Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. On its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. 
But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know what the meaning, uh, the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is God's word. Well, good evening, and what a reading. Uh, if you haven't met me, my name's Simon Pedley. Uh, Susie, thank you for getting us through that. And uh, if you're new amongst us, you might have thought the service sort of made sense until the start of that reading, and then it all went completely nuts. Don't worry, everyone else is feeling the same. So let's uh, pray, and because uh, we definitely need God's help with this one. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the whole of the Bible, including chapters that at first glance are very strange to our ears. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand this vision of beasts and horns and, and strange things beyond our experience. Uh, Lord, help us to, to see what it says about our world and how we should live for you. In Jesus' name. So, uh, this is it. This is the point at which Daniel turns bizarre. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if you've ever seen, not, not recommending it necessarily, but the Tarantino film from Dusk Till Dawn. About an hour of fairly standard uh, road movie. Uh, you think it's based in the real world. And then suddenly, uh, 45 minutes before the end, everyone turns into a vampire, and it's a weird gore fest for the rest of the film. And, very odd turning point in the film. So it is with Daniel. We've had six chapters of narrative, very dramatic, uh, but fairly straightforward to understand as you read through the stories. If you're expecting more of that, sorry, we have now hit the vampires. Uh, and uh, chapters 7 to 12 of Daniel consist of four visions, 
There's one in chapter 7, one in 8, one in 9, and then 10 to 12 is uh, a vision, uh, one vision. We're still anchored in history, though. Each of these visions is carefully dated at the beginning to a certain year of uh, various kings. But the content of these visions is bizarre, uh, grotesque, trippy. Uh, and the second half of Daniel, although it's so different in style, it's important to say this. The message is exactly the same as the first half. Uh, Human kingdoms will come and go, but God rules forever, so trust him. Exactly the same message. Let me just briefly prove that to you from uh, chapter 17. The most, perhaps, helpful verses of the whole chapter. Let's have a look at verse 16. Uh, Daniel says, I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. That's what we want to know, isn't it? The true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. That is the summary. Whatever we figure out or not about the details, the main point is clear. Human kingdoms will come and go, but God will then rule forever. Which begs the question, why do we need the weirdness? Uh, Let me say a few things about that before we step into the vision itself. Four things about uh, what's coming up in these chapters. Uh, Number one, writing like this in the Bible is often called apocalyptic literature. Uh, But don't think of that necessarily in the modern sense of a kind of disaster that brings about the end of the world. The, The word apocalypse literally means reveal, revelation. This is God revealing truth to Daniel, albeit in a very unusual way. Uh, secondly, it communicates using images. This is picture language. It's like a, a sort of special effects uh, motion picture to immerse yourself in. We're meant to uh, step into it and experience it with Daniel. It does reveal truth, but metaphorically rather than literally. It's worth saying uh, that is a little different from just about all of the literature we normally inhabit today. And because of that, these apocalyptic sections of Daniel uh, tend to be either nervously avoided by Christians or obsessed over by nutters who you come up with bizarre, fantastical interpretations. You'll have to decide for yourself whether I'm one of those. Uh, But we need to read with humility and restraint as we look at this. Third, it's designed to be experienced. We're not meant to pour over this from a sort of comfortable distance and try to analyze it and treat it like a a puzzle to be figured out and solved and then we can move on to the next chapter. We're meant to step in and experience Daniel's distress, uh, be thrilled by the things that thrill him. And fourth, a little word of encouragement to some. There aren't many visions like this in the Bible. Uh, Just a handful of chapters here, some in Zechariah and then the book of Revelation. So if you're here thinking, good grief, is it like this every week in the Bible? The answer is no, although it will be for the next four or five weeks. (laughs) So uh, let's step in and immerse ourselves in chapter 7. Structurally, there are two sections. Verses 1 to 14, you see Daniel's dream. And then 15 onwards is Daniel asking an angel for uh, some answers to his questions that arise from the dream that he's had. But uh, to avoid dotting around topically, what we're going to do is work our way through the dream section itself, 1 to 14, and then use the answers that the angel gives wherever they're relevant to help us to understand the dream. So here we go. Uh, Two points from the dream. Number one, the rise of the beasts. And number two, the reign of the Most High. 
So first, the rise of the beast. This is verses 1 to 8. We first join Daniel in his vision in verse 2, standing on the shore of a vast ocean with four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. So it's a sort of eerie scene already. But if we enter into the mindset of a believer from Daniel's day, this sea takes on an even more sinister tone. Because biblically, the sea itself was often used as an image of sort of untamed chaos, a place of danger, a hiding place for evil and for the enemies of God. And sure enough, out of this evil sea, this place of chaos, four terrifying beasts emerge. They are horrific creatures, ugly, mutant hybrids of animals, arriving one after another, each more ugly and terrifying than the last one. That's worth saying, uh, we've already encountered these four kingdoms. Uh, We know they're four kingdoms, as uh, we saw in verse 17. We've encountered them before, back in chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar, you might remember, had a dream of a statue with four parts, uh, chapters 2 and 7 are something of a, a, a pair of twins uh, in terms of chapters. They form the beginning and the end of the book, in, uh, the section in Daniel that is written in the Aramaic language rather than in Hebrew. And each of those chapters, 2 and 7, has four human kingdoms followed by God's kingdom, which overthrows them all and, uh, and takes over forever. But what chapter 7 adds to what we saw in chapter 2 is this apocalyptic experience of it. We've got to feel the horror of these beasts. So, let's face up to them and have a look. Uh, Beast 1 snarls its way out of the sea in verse 4. It is a lion, but with wings of an eagle. Imagine if flying lions existed. What chance would you have? This is a super-capable predator, Ferocious, swift, inescapable. But then, middle of verse 4, no sooner does it emerge from the sea, then we see its wings torn off and it gets lifted upright. So it stands on its two feet like a man. And the heart of a man is given to it. Now maybe something about that starts ringing bells. Ah, King Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember him in chapter 5? When King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon uh, lost his mind and lived like an animal for a, for a time. And then when he looked to God in repentance, God restored his humanity. That's how King Nebuchadnezzar described it at the time. And most scholars agree this lion-eagle hybrid uh, best represents Nebuchadnezzar, or the, the Babylonian kingdom that he ruled as a whole. And uh, Daniel probably thought the same as he saw this first beast. Beast 2, verse 5. Lumbers out looking like a bear. Please forget teddy bears and gentle Ben and all that sort of thing. This bear is a voracious killer. In its mouth are three ribs from its previous victim and it receives a command to kill again. Get up and eat your fill of flesh. This bear, this kingdom, operated like a ravenous beast, uh, just killing and eating endlessly to satisfy its own relentless hunger for more. We'll try and say a bit by way of interpretation of these other beasts in a moment. Let's move to beast three. Beast three springs out of the sea in verse six, looking like a leopard, but with four wings and four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Again, just think about what a predator this is. The the speed and ferocity of a, a leopard 
combined with the effortless flight of four wings, combined with an ability to presumably see and bite in every direction with these four heads. Presumably that's something of what is symbolized here, an oppressive totalitarian police state maybe where nobody can hide. Nothing escapes the the watching eyes of the authorities that can turn in any direction and go anywhere uh, with speed. But if we think those are awful, beast four in verse seven makes the others look like pet poodles. It is the most hideous Uh, No earthly animals can describe it. All Daniel actually sees of it are uh, teeth and feet and horns. He says it is terrifying and frightening and very, very powerful. With its iron teeth, it crushes its victims. With its feet, it tramples anything that remains. This is some unimaginably horrific monster, more machine than creature, Uh, like one of those killing machines from War of the Worlds. Something utterly, unspeakably dreadful. Daniel keeps saying it was different from all the others. But whenever he explains what he means by that, he just says simply it was the most terrifying. Verse 19 says that. Verse 23 uh, says it was the most terrifying and it will devour and trample and crush the whole earth. And then part of this fourth beast is the little horn in verse 8. That... uh, uh, there comes up a particular leader of this fourth kingdom. And he has, it says there, eyes like a man and spoke boastfully. I don't, know, I don't know how you imagine this. In my head, it looks a little bit like the sorting hat from Harry Potter, if anyone has memories of that. A little horn with a face. Um, that may or may not help you at all. He uprooted three of the other horns. Verse 24, uh, in the angel's explanation, uh, says that, The horns are all kings, and this little horn uprooted three other kings in order to become a king himself. Why such a focus on this particular king, this this little horn? Well, we're given a bit more explanation from the angel in verse 21. Uh, As I watched, he says, uh, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Uh, So that is uh, Daniel's comment. And remember that saints uh, in the Bible is always a word for all of God's people. Not just a select bunch of particularly holy people that have been chosen by somebody. Uh, Saints is all of God's people. So this little horn was oppressing God's people. More detail comes of this little horn in verse 25. He will speak against the Most High and oppress the saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Interesting. Essentially, this boasting little horn sets himself up in direct opposition to God, speaking against him, oppressing his people, attempting to take over ruling the entire earth, and assuming the authority to change times and laws. Okay, enough, enough. What on earth does all of this mean? Uh, This is disturbing stuff of nightmares. Daniel, in verse 15, was troubled in spirit and disturbed by what he saw. And we're not surprised, really. This kind of dream uh, would would leave you a little freaked out. Uh, a night in a den of lions that he's already been through is, is nothing compared to this. Now, we know these are human kingdoms, but which ones? You can imagine that there are endless debates amongst the uh, the commentators. Some say it's uh, Babylon. Everyone agrees on Babylon. And then Medo-Persia 
considered together, Greece and then Rome, those four. Others say Babylon and then Media and Persia considered separately, then Greece, maybe. I throw that out there as information. That's what the scholars are saying. Um, it sort of fits either way when you put this chapter and other chapters of Daniel together. And I think we need to be very hesitant about making a judgment call on how precisely this may or may not fit with history. And some of you might easily sit there thinking, what? That is very disappointing. Please give me facts and names and dates. Um, Can I instead give you five reasons, very briefly, uh, to try to persuade you that I, I think we should not necessarily be too definite about this. Number one, Daniel never explicitly makes those identifications in this chapter. You'll see next week in chapter eight, he's perfectly capable of naming empires when he wants to. But he doesn't do that here in chapter 7, so maybe we shouldn't go beyond what he says. Uh, secondly, the number four tends to be significant in this type of writing. There are four beasts and four winds of heaven. In Bible poetry, the number four tends to symbolize a, a kind of global spread across the four compass points, rather than necessarily four events in sequence. Thirdly, uh, just have a look quickly at verse 12. After the fourth beast is killed, the other beasts uh, continue to live for a time, stripped of their authority. That's a bit of a problem if we want to consider it empire after empire after empire. The fourth beast goes and the others seem to still be around somehow. And uh, fourth, uh, the descriptions of each beast can work with different empires. Uh, It could be uh, even the little horn... Uh, fits with a second century Greek king, Antiochus and Epiphanes, who oppressed the Jewish people uh, horribly, cancelling their feasts, forcing them to abandon God's laws. Could that be him changing times and seasons, perhaps? Uh, desecrating the temple with pagan sacrifices. Apparently he did that for three and a half years. Could that be time, times, and then half a time, three and a half years? Could that be it? But then uh, it could equally be Roman Emperor, Emperor Titus in AD 70 when very similar things were done and the temple was destroyed. Or could there still be some future tyrant who will fit the picture even more perfectly? I wouldn't rule that out. But not much is gained by this speculation. Uh, and fifthly, in the book of Revelation, there's a beast in chapter 13 which combines all of Daniel's four beasts. So we get a an even more bizarre beast than we've got here. A lion, bear, leopard with seven heads, add up all the heads of these ones, and ten horns. So perhaps we're meant to consider these beasts together, in a sense, more than pick apart the individual details. So if, if the precise identifications are not so much the point, what is? Well, remember, this is for us to experience, to feel the horror of the rise and the fall of these beastly kingdoms. Beasts like these stalk our world. They take various forms, they change shapes as the decades and the centuries pass. At times, human empires will be more human. Maybe we think of a Mandela or a Gandhi or a Churchill. Sometimes they'll be beastly in their lust for power, and violence, maybe a Gaddafi or an Assad come to mind. Sometimes they will be horrifically, unspeakably evil, usually under one particular representative of that. So a name like Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot goes down in history as a byword for utter horror. And these rises and falls 
of human kingdoms affect everyone that, that they, they touch on. But Daniel is particularly concerned about the saints, the, the people of God. Sometimes Christians under these various beastly rules will live in relative comfort. Sometimes it's much harder. And sometimes the saints are brutally hunted down and killed by the very worst of the regimes out there. But this is the world in which we live, isn't it? Whether you look sequentially through time or spatially across the world, you do see this grotesque parade of beasts of different kinds. Now, many persecuted Christians across the world would read this chapter and think, yes, that that is exactly my experience. By contrast, I'm guessing that most people gathered here tonight uh, would feel slightly distanced from it. Not all of us have experienced anything like this. Most of us have lived under fairly benign regimes, uh, certainly benign compared to these beasts. And so we easily feel slightly detached, but we shouldn't. We should feel this. We should enter into this chapter with Daniel. Daniel 7 is still our world, a world that we share with horrifically persecuted Christians in other countries. So maybe this is a way to test yourself. When you hear of killings of Christians in Sudan or Nigeria or Syria or North Korea. What do you feel? Do you feel a sort of hint of sympathy followed pretty quickly by gratitude that you don't live there and they're thousands of miles away? And a sense of alienation because our world is actually very different. Make no mistake, we and they share the same world where these beasts and others like them are on the rampage. There are horrors stalking this world, and somewhere there are always Christians in terrible danger, maybe closer than we think. Daniel 7 says, Wake up and feel this. The rise of the beast should leave us feeling distressed in the way that Daniel did. A world where such things can happen is not right. It needs to be stopped. We need some kind of end. We need to feel distressed by what we see. Some kind of judgment on this fearsome parade of persecuting beasts. And that is exactly what happens as Daniel's dream continues. So let's continue with the rest of what Daniel sees in our second point. We've seen the rise of the beasts. Now the the reign of the Most High. This is verses 9 to 14. I don't know if you noticed, but God's title throughout this chapter is The Most High. Higher than all of these beasts is another throne occupied by someone far more powerful than they are. Even in verses 1 to 8, we we see hints of it. Did you notice how the beasts only have what they have because it's given to them? The lion's heart, the bear's command to eat, the leopard's authority, they're all said to be given to these beasts. Despite appearances, they're not in control. The Most High is reigning even as these beasts roam the earth. Initially, he reigns behind the scenes. But then in verse 9, there is a a glorious unveiling. A, A great throne room is revealed. And we actually see the Most High himself. Let me talk us uh, through three aspects of what Daniel sees here, there on your sheet. Uh, The Ancient of Days passes judgment. The Son of Man receives worship. And the saints receive the kingdom. There's three things. So first, the Ancient of Days passes judgment. Verse 9, 
thrones are set in place. And then look at what follows, this image of God the Most High. He is the Ancient of Days. In other words, a timeless God, without beginning, without end, without age or decay. How different from these beasts which sort of pop out of the sea and have their time in the sun rampaging and then they're overthrown. Their time is very limited compared to the Ancient of Days. His clothing, verse 9, was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. He is, in other words, utterly perfect in his flawless judgment, flawless in his wisdom. How different, again, from these unclean beasts which are covered in presumably seawater and animal filth and blood from their victims. The pure white God Most High. Verse 9, his throne was flaming with fire. And its wheels were all ablaze. And from this flaming chariot throne, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. So here is an unstoppable judge with uh, power to pass sentence, well able to destroy his enemies. I don't know if you remember, um, after 9-11, the the first operations that uh, the U.S. put into play against uh, terrorism at the time were called Operation Infinite Justice. And a few people sort of raised their eyebrows a little bit at that, and they ended up changing the name because people pointed out only God can deliver infinite justice. That's the picture here, a God who can deliver perfect, untarnished, infinite justice. In verse 10, he is surrounded by thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 courtroom attendants, probably angels, his heavenly entourage there. And so as the court is seated and the books are opened, we think here at last is a judge with both the power to sort out right from wrong and deal with these beasts and the pure wisdom to always choose the right. And so the Ancient of Days passes judgment on the beasts. Did you notice that all this time this little horn on the fourth beast, has been rabbiting on, unaware of the heavenly court scene unfolding behind him. Uh, He's so absorbed with his own self-importance that he doesn't notice what's going on. Verse 11, Daniel continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Or as uh, verse 26 explains it, The court will sit, and his power will be taken away, and completely destroyed forever. Nothing can evade the judgment of the Ancient of Days, not even that fourth most horrific and terrifying beast. If we felt the horror of the beasts, then we'll feel the relief and the joy of this. This judgment is wonderful news for the oppressed of every generation. Even the most horrific and inhumane of all evil human despots are really just like little horns, uh, rabbiting on while God prepares their judgment in the background. The Ancient of Days has the power and wisdom to overthrow these beasts, and that is fantastic news. So first, the Ancient of Days passes judgment. Secondly, the Son of Man receives worship. Here is where Daniel 7 takes us to an extraordinary vision of Jesus himself. Uh, Daniel must have found it bizarre and confusing. Uh, The Ancient of Days is not the only 
divine figure in the courtroom. There is, verse 13, one like a son of man. Now in the Bible, son of man uh, can often just be a very ordinary phrase. It just means bloke, a human being. Uh, and uh, in, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is called the son of man. In Daniel chapter 8, Daniel himself just gets called the son of man. It's just a word to say a person, a bloke. So on one level, this son of man is simply a human being. And yet, look at him in verse 13. He rides on the clouds of heaven. If you read Psalm 68 or Isaiah 19, you'll see that God is the one who rides on the clouds of heaven. And in verse 14, this happens. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There's two things there that only God should have. Only God should have total dominion over time and space. And only God should receive worship. But this son of man receives both. This human being receives both. Total dominion stretching across the globe and on into eternity. And worship. If you've spent any time in the Bible, you'll know that only God should receive worship. The worship of anything else pushes God out of our lives and is is deeply, deeply offensive to him. But this son of man is worshipped by all peoples, nations, and men of every language. Frankly, if this son of man is not God... This is the biggest scandal, the biggest outrage of the Bible, that he should receive global worship and dominion. So Daniel was probably very confused about this man who was also God. But for us, maybe you know that Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself is that little phrase, the Son of Man. 81 times in the Gospels he uses it to speak of himself. Let me just give you a sample of some of the things that he says of himself as the Son of Man. He says, The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. At the renewal of all things, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus very clearly wants us to see that he is this Son of Man from Daniel 7. Why is it his favorite title? Maybe because it best sums up who he is and why he came. Who he is? Well, he's both human and divine. He's perfectly human in a way that all these beasts would never be. How brilliant is that? After all those beastly rulers, finally there is a perfect human being on the throne with no hint of beastly imperfections about him. Our brutal world that is so often ruled by beasts cannot be humanized without Jesus. He's perfectly human, but he's also truly, fully divine. 
sharing these attributes of God the Father, the Ancient of Days, reigning over God's world and receiving the worship due to God. That's who he is. And why he came? Well, he came to sit on the throne of God and to rule over the world, having gathered people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Jesus, uh, in the Gospels, talks about his kingdom a lot. It is this kingdom, the Daniel 7 kingdom, that he's talking about. He's going to rescue his people from the beasts. But also he rescues his people from their own beastliness, if I can put it that way from their own sin and death. The Son of Man, as Jesus said, went to the cross to die in place of his people. That is the great moment of rescue, where people can be brought into his kingdom forever. So this is Jesus, this Son of Man. So let me ask you, have you come to terms with who Jesus is? As God, as man as rightful ruler of our universe, as the one who will one day rule unopposed forever, as the one who died to rescue his people, the one who deserves every ounce of your worship. If you and I don't side with him, then we're siding with with a beast, one of the many beasts who will one day be overthrown by him. Or Perhaps in whatever power and authority you personally wield in your life, you might even be operating as a beast. You and I I can do that if we're operating outside Jesus' kingdom. We all need the Son of Man. Come to him. So, the Ancient of Days passes judgment. The Son of Man receives worship. Finally, the saints receive the kingdom. We've said that biblically the saints are the people of God throughout time and space, including Daniel and his generation, including you and me, if we uh, worship Jesus, the Son of Man. And uh, in the angel's explanations to Daniel, in verse 15 onwards, the saints come increasingly into view. Daniel himself seems to have been rather morbidly fascinated with the beasts. We can forgive him that. I think that's uh, that's forgivable. His questions are all about the fourth beast and the little horn, uh, and we can understand that. But although the angel does answer him to some extent about those beasts, he doesn't really say much that is new about the beasts. What the angel does repeatedly focus on is the future that awaits the saints. So verse 18 The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Verse 22. The Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven will be handed over to... I expect it to be the Son of Man or the Ancient of Days, don't you? the sovereignty, the power, the greatness of the kingdom, the whole heaven will be handed over to, it's the saints, the people of the Most High. It's still his kingdom. The verse goes on. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. But repeatedly, in the angel's explanations, it is the saints who receive, who possess the kingdom. Did you expect that? I didn't expect that. Not that anything in Daniel 7 is particularly expected. But... uh, I'm sure we would have expected it to say uh, something like, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man will rule over their kingdom and the saints become their happy subjects for all eternity. That would do, 
That would be wonderful. That would be fantastic. But there's more. We receive the kingdom. That becomes a bit of a a theme in the New Testament as well. Here's uh, a verse from the last chapter of the Bible in the book of Revelation. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. That's the throne of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And his servants will serve him, and they will reign forever and ever. The saints will reign forever and ever. Imagine getting a letter from the queen saying, you know what, I'd quite like your help running the country. And if all of us got that, and we all got invited to take part, that would be quite something, quite a picture. I don't know quite how a country can be run with everybody involved. Um, but that is something of the picture to hold in your head. Whatever your experience of, of life is like now, if you're a saint, one of the, the Son of Man's people, he will bring you and me and every one of his people to share in his rule. If you're not a saint, if you're not yet convinced about who Jesus is, if you're not a a follower of him, do you see how glorious a future that could be? How different it is from any kind of experience of, of government in this world, different from the tyrannies, even different from the best of the democracies in this world. A glorious future with Jesus. And the angel is essentially saying, Daniel, Christchurch Mayfair, don't miss the point of Daniel 7. Yes, the beasts and the horns will sometimes oppress God's people, sometimes terribly. But look beyond that. The focus is not ultimately on these monsters. God will bring that time, this time, to an end. And beyond all of that, It's the heavenly court where the beasts will be either tamed or destroyed forever. And then, not only will the Most High reign, but you and I, if we're his people, we will reign with him. So as we finish, remember, when this world looks beastly, when uh, you get the latest newsletter or email, and there there are horrifying stories of the way Christians are treated, when you get the latest newsletter about how things are are going in this country, and you fear for... Uh, how beastly things might get for Christians here. Let's fix our eyes not only on the beasts, or we might just end up deeply troubled like Daniel and nothing else, but on that heavenly throne room, on Jesus, Jesus the Son of Man, who will deliver the final and decisive judgment and whose kingdom will last forever. This world can, can do its worst. But ultimately, it has no power to hurt you or me or any other saint eternally. The day is coming when all the beasts will be gone, and Jesus and his saints, they'll remain. Let's pray. Father, help us to feel this. Help us not to get comfortable in our world and imagine that uh, we somehow escape this uh, horrifying picture. Help us to identify with your people across the world. Help us to feel the awfulness of their persecution at times. Help us to lament it, to pray to you. Help us to cry out for that wonderful day of judgment where you will wrong, uh, right every wrong, where you will uh, establish Jesus as the ruler for all eternity. We thank you for that glorious day that awaits us. We pray that you'd help us to look forward to it and to lift our eyes to it whenever this world turns beastly. In Jesus' name, amen.